Now, in this passage that we're about to read, uh, we have Jesus' third attempt to teach his disciples the meaning of his death. We've seen it in a couple of other verses in chapter 8 and also in chapter 9 where Jesus has told the disciples that he's indeed going to, to die. But this time, Jesus gives us more details than in the previous two times. And for the first time here, we're told not only that he's going to die, but we are also told why he will do so. And here he begins to explain the meaning and purpose of his death. Now, verse 45, if you just glance down quickly, a very famous verse. Uh, Many people, many commentators and Bible scholars and those who would summarize the the, uh, teaching of Mark here would say that this this very verse is the theme of this entire gospel. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and indeed we will be focusing in on that verse combined with the others uh, in our, in our uh, study this morning. But let's now turn our attention to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, "You You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word and write his truth upon our hearts this morning. Domenico Fetti was a talented Italian artist. One of his most famous paintings was entitled Ecce Homo, which means Behold the Man. Uh, it was a portrait of Christ with a crown of thorns upon his head, pressed down and blood running down his face. And beneath the portrait were, was an inscription that said, I have suffered this for you. What have you done for me? Now, there are two people uh, in history who were profoundly affected by the sight of this painting uh, as they saw it in Germany. And as they meditated upon it, the first person was a man called Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Uh, I doubt any of these ladies who are about to have a child are 
planning on naming their, their child Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, thankfully. Uh, but maybe so. I didn't want to plant a seed in anybody's mind there. Uh, but anyway, he, he was a wealthy person in 1700, around that time. He took a trip throughout Europe looking at some of the cultural high spots. Uh, but in the art museum at Dusseldorf, he saw a painting, this painting by Fetty, and all of his life, Zinzendorf looked back at that moment as utterly life-changing. As he stood there, uh, watching, looking at this picture of, of the Savior suffering and bleeding, he said to himself, well, I have loved Jesus for a long time, but I've never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. And from that moment on, his life became marked by an unparalleled zeal for Jesus and his kingdom. And he had a massive impact in his day and even past his own life. Now, the other person who was affected by Fetty's uh, painting was a woman in England named Frances Havergal. She wrote a, a number of hymns. The first hymn that she wrote was actually... Uh, this last one that we're going to be singing today, I Gave My Life for Thee. That hymn was written after she saw and was inspired by Fetty's painting. Now, we don't have a copy of Fetty's painting here today, but we do have uh, Mark's account before us today that paints, us a, paints a portrait of Jesus. And I hope today that our study, like Fetty's painting, will inspire us as we see Christ and the meaning of his death, uh, the characteristics of his death, as we see that that will inspire us to a life of discipleship and service to Christ, to give our lives for him as he has given his life for us. Now, I want to make two points today, hopefully rather quickly. Uh, first, Jesus' death was a ransom. That tells us something about the character of Jesus' death. And then the second point, uh, much shorter, Jesus' disciples are the ransomed. Jesus' disciples are the ransomed. Well, let's look first at what this passage tells us about Jesus' death. Certainly appropriate to be studying this passage on a day when we are coming to the Lord's table and meditating upon the shedding of Christ's blood and the laying down of his life for us. Verse 45 that we've highlighted already, states that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, the verb of this word ransom in the original language means liberation from captivity through a payment. And, of course, the noun ransom is just like we use it today. It's the actual price that is paid for a person's deliverance from captivity. Now, when we think of the word ransom, we automatically think of someone being kidnapped. And the kidnappers demand a million dollars for the release of someone that they have unlawfully captured. The payment of the million dollars would be the ransom. But in those days, this was not primarily what people thought of when they thought of ransomed. It wasn't kidnapping, but rather the, the purchase of a person out of slavery who had been captured in war. Uh, prisoners of war were used as slaves, and in order for them to be released, a ransom had to be given. A price had to be paid. And the ransom was the price paid 
to bring a prisoner of war out of his captivity. Now, as Jesus says this, that he came to be a ransom, that has a number of implications for us who sit here today. The first implication is this. If there is a ransom that has to be paid and Jesus paid that ransom, that means that someone is in bondage, is enslaved. And, of course, that someone is us. Jesus says that he came to be a ransom for many. People like me and you and the disciples, we need rescuing. We are captives in bondage, enslaved. We are helpless to do anything about it. We can't free ourselves. And if you survey the rest of the Bible and what it says about this topic, uh, we can say that we are in bondage to sin, to death, and to the law. And then probably some other things as well that we're in bondage to. These are the forces that hold us captive, and we can't escape on our own. Now, some people don't like this. Uh, maybe you don't feel this. I, you know, I'm not a slave. I'm a, I'm a very independent person. I'm my own man. Uh, you know, I'm not in bondage to anything. Uh, some people get offended when you say things like that. But as we think about it, everyone is a slave to something. Everyone serves something. You, you can't escape it. Not one human being can escape serving something. You have something in your life that rules you. It's the reason that you get up in the morning, whatever that might be, something that motivates you through life. It's what dictates the choices that you make and the direction your life takes. It may not be a bad thing, but a good thing. Uh, sometimes we can be enslaved to good things like money. Money is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, family is not a bad thing, but if it's the, the chief motivator of our lives, then it, is the, then it is our master. It is in the place of supreme authority in our lives. When God created everything, good things, nor bad things, were ever intended to be our master. They can't bear it because they are not divine. They are not God. You're putting something in the place of God and only God can fit in that place. For example, if you put your family in the place of God, if that is the sole motivator of your life, that is why you get up in the morning to live for your family, you are going to want that God, a family, to bless you. And somehow, some way, your family is going to let you down because they are sinners too. And you're going to be disappointed. And it's too much of a burden for your family. And it's too much of a burden to you. And it's enslaving. That is why the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. God is thinking of us. We were created to worship and serve him and him alone. Primarily, nothing else, not even good things. Now, if we flipped it over on his head, we can say everybody worships something. We ascribe ultimate worth to something. Now, whatever that something is drives your life. What is it that controls you and enslaves you? What is it that you worship and give your time, your energy, uh, your money to, that will tell you what your, uh, what your God is. Is it Jesus? It's either the Lord or it's something else. There are no other options. Everybody serves something. The Bible tells us that we're enslaved to death. We can think about it this way. 
death is inevitable. I hate to be Debbie Downer here this morning. Nobody likes to think about it. But we are in bondage to it. It's the ball and chain that is slowly, slowly dragging us all down. We are powerless to escape it. No matter how much we work out, no matter how, uh, how hard we diet and, and look good, and, nor how much plastic surgery we have, death is inevitable. We were talking about this in our men's study yesterday, and trying not to get too depressed, talking about how we're all getting older and we can't do the things that we used to do. And it's, it's very sad, but we cannot escape it. We're in bondage, and we need to be free. And Jesus is saying that's what he came to do for us, to free us from that bondage. Now, there's another implication. Jesus paid the price. Now, the word ransom assumes that there is a price or a penalty to be paid in order to release slaves, a release through payment. Somebody must bear a cost. What was the cost to free us from bondage to law, sin, death, and hell. Verse 45 tells us. It says that Jesus gave what as a ransom for many? His life. His life. It wasn't just a, a monetary sum. It wasn't just some service rendered. It was much more than that. It was his life. Everything about it. This pulls, us, pulls into a, the, the, our thoughts the idea of substitution. To free us from the enemy... Jesus came and swapped lives with us. He swapped places with us. That little word for, he gave his uh, uh, life as a ransom for many. In their place is what that means. He gave his life for us. Jesus gave his whole life for our life. It was a complete substitution. To put it vividly, here's what it means. The very same dark forces that held us took hold of him instead. He experienced everything from the law, sin, death, and hell that we, we have or would have experienced. The ransomer experiences poverty and loss so the slave can experience plenty and freedom. That's the price that Jesus paid, his, his life. And how deep was that loss, that price that he paid. Look at how Jesus speaks about it in verse 38. When he's interacting with James and John with their crazy request. He says, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus uses two images here to describe his death. A cup that he drinks and a baptism with which he is baptized. Let's look at these in turn. The cup. When you look throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible indeed, uh, the cup is used as a metaphor for the wrath of God on human sin and evil. Psalm 75, it says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And Isaiah 51 talks about the cup being a cup of staggering. Ezekiel talks of it as a cup of horror and desolation. And this is the cup that Jesus was tormented over in the Garden of Gethsemane as he knew that his life was, uh, was short and he was about to be delivered over to the, the leaders, uh, the chief priests and, and the scribes and the Pharisees. And he cried out, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup 
pass from me. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath for sin that He had come to earth to drink in our place willingly so people like you and me would never have to know uh, his, God's holy wrath for sin. Look at what Jesus suffered on the cross. He, he did endure physical suffering, but more than that, He endured spiritual torment in His soul, the wrath of God. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured abandonment by the Father. The same Father, Heavenly Father, who always said, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, when you lose a, a relationship, you know, say someone uh, who, you, who you really are just acquainted with, and one day they come up to you and say, You know, I never want to see you again or talk to you. I don't want to have anything to do with you ever again. Well, that would be hurtful. But since you were just acquaintances and, and you didn't really know them all that well, you might say, oh, okay, I'm, you know, sorry, whatever, you know, good riddance. You might be offended. But if it's somebody that's very close to you, say a spouse or a child, and they say that, those words to you, I don't ever want to see or talk to you again, that is a much deeper pain and hurt than just some acquaintance. On the cross, Jesus experienced eternal separation from His heavenly Father. In the Trinity, before time ever began, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a perfect love relationship that they uh, had enjoyed for eternity, closer than any human relationship could ever be. And on the cross, that was taken away from Jesus. And that's why He cried out. Why did He do that? Because we deserve to be abandoned by God. Because we're the ones who are sinners, but He did that in our place. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that it was for our sake He, God, the Father, made Jesus, the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53 talks about it this way. Jesus was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus paid the price, that ransom, on the cross. And what did He say when He had finished paying it? He said, it is finished. And that term is an accounting term. Uh, it's the same when you, you know, get a receipt from, a, from some uh, a business where you've paid your bill. They'll stamp paid in full. That's exactly what it means. Jesus makes the proclamation from the cross that it is finished. He has paid the ransom. The captives can go free now because I have suffered in my soul the wrath of God for sin. I have uh, suffered the abandonment that should be theirs. I've taken it all in their place. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we know that he has not been rejected, but his offering of for salvation has been accepted because he, he has completed the mission that the Father has sent him on to be a ransom. And so he can go back. You know, you, you guys who are in the military know this. If your commanding officer uh, gives you an order, uh, you don't come back until you've carried that order out. And when you come back and you have carried your, that order out, then you can report with confidence. And I feel that's what Jesus is doing here. He has taken care of business on the cross for us. And now he can go and say, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then it tells us 
that he yielded up his spirit. I love that. They didn't kill him. He yielded up his spirit. He laid his life down for us. It wasn't just taken from him. He laid it down as a ransom for many. Now, there are many people in our day and time especially who object to the concept that Jesus died as our substitute because of the implication that that God is an angry God that needs to be appeased with blood. And that sounds a lot like the old bloodthirsty gods of antiquity. Well, if you think that, you're missing the point because the gospel teaches the self-substitution of God. This is not human beings trying to appease uh, a begrudging, unwilling God. But this is the Lord himself coming down from his throne and voluntarily putting himself forth as a substitutionary payment on our behalf. It's the very opposite of the bloodthirsty gods of primitive religion. Jesus not only talks about his death as a a cup that he drank, but as a baptism. And it's the same type of idea that he's giving. This to be baptized with a baptism was an idiom of the day. And it means to be overwhelmed by some difficult experience, uh, some ordeal to suffer something. And Luke, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He has a single-minded purpose, and he knows that it's difficult, and he is in distress until he does that. Psalm 88 talks about, uh, uses this same kind of language, the, the overwhelming wrath of God coming down upon Jesus. Psalm 88 says, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. And that is what happened to Christ on the cross. He was baptized with a baptism that should have been ours, but he did it for us as a ransom. Now I want you to, one last thing to notice about this, that, that Jesus did this intentionally, on purpose. He didn't just stumble into this or accidentally come upon being the Savior of the world. No, he came for that very purpose. You'll notice there that it says that he came not to be served, but to serve. He came. He came down from heaven to serve. He made a special trip to come down and do this thing, to be a ransom for many. It's a strong hint to us that Jesus existed before he was born because he came. When did he come? He came when he took on flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. And he came and served his whole life. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. It says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, and that means that he was everything that God is. He was the exact representation of God. He was in the very form of God. He did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He emptied himself of, of his glory. He emptied himself of all the rights of being God. He didn't cease being God himself, but he sacrificed the position of being God. And he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this is why the disciples, as it tells us here in verse 32, 
as they're heading towards Jerusalem, it says there, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Now, why were they amazed or astonished or startled? Why were they afraid? Because they see Jesus is going right into uh, the teeth of the beast. They knew that people were out to kill him. And he'd already predicted it. And here he is, heading in that direction. But they don't say anything, but they are afraid. Because they know something's coming. Jesus is saying it's coming. He knows what's going, because he's doing it intentionally for us. Look at the quote on the front of the bulletin from J.C. Ryle. This sums it up so beautifully and brings us into the, very briefly, the next point. Let us ever bless God that the gospel says before us such a Savior, so faithful to the terms of the covenant, so ready to suffer, so willing to be reconciled and a curse in our stead. Let us not doubt that he who fulfilled his engagement to suffer will also fulfill his engagement to save all who come to him. What a great comfort that is. Let us not only accept him gladly as our Redeemer and Advocate, but gladly give ourselves and all we have to his service. Surely if Jesus cheerfully died for us, it is a small thing to require Christians to live for him. And that brings me to the second point. Jesus' disciples are the ransom. The word ransom implies that we have a new relationship with Jesus. With a ransomer. The ransomees have a new relationship with a ransomer. Ordinarily, the liberated slaves now owe their life to the one who liberated them. There's a new relationship of love and grateful and willing service to the one who has given them life. The former captive is now a captive of love. 1 Corinthians 6 says, You are not your own, you are bought with a price. Indeed, we were. We were ransomed. We were, we were granted escape through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So when James and John come to Jesus and ask for privileges... You know, to ask to sit at his right and his left, uh, you know, it's quite shocking. And Jesus explains in, in verse 42, when he calls the disciples, they're all so jealous of one another and fighting for position. He explains to them that in their land, in their times, that it was customary for the Gentiles to lord over them. In the Roman times, those uh, uh, people who were in positions of authority would would give uh, positions to people under them. And in turn, they would lord over those who were under them. And you were trying to climb up the ladder so you can have more people to boss around. And that's the way it went in those days. But Jesus is saying, no. If you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, you're going to be a servant. And he sets the example. And if we would follow him in his footsteps, then we must serve unselfishly. We must serve not ourselves, but others, just like Jesus did for us. That's what he calls us to. And to follow him just doesn't mean to follow him around like a dog might follow you around if you feed it, with no purpose other than to get a blessing from it, from the master. When Jesus says to follow him, he means to come, to come along where he went. Uh, to, to live the kind of life that he lived, to be the kind of person that he is, to take on his characteristics. We're disciples. We're learning from him. We're emulating him. We're reflecting his glory. And we cannot do that unless we serve him 
and one another. And let me just encourage you today to begin with those closest to you. It begins at home. Uh, to serve the person close, to be unselfish, to put the other's need in front of your own. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And it starts with spouses, it starts with uh, parents, it starts with siblings, and then it goes out into the workplace. And then it goes out uh, to our friends. Uh, It goes to school. It goes wherever we are as Christians. And let me tell you, if you go and you live that way, you're going to make an impact for Jesus Christ as individuals, and as a church. You know, one of the thoughts that I had this week about our church is, are we serving as a church? If we disappeared all of a sudden from Biloxi and there was no First Presbyterian Church, would anybody notice? Do we make a difference in our community? Do we serve our community? Are we salt and light in our community? Back to that passage, and I'll conclude with this. Philippians 2, where it talks about Jesus emptying himself. If you back up a couple of verses, it tells us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Behold the man, the the painting said, this is Christ, the servant of all. Uh, He gave his life for you. What will you give for him? Let's pray together.